Good evening to you all, and particularly good evening uh, to our guest, who we are absolutely delighted to have with us at the London School of Economics. This is uh, one of a series of dialogues that has been sponsored by Global Policy. Global Policy is a new LSE journal that focuses on the big global challenges of our time. It's very interesting, and I know that up until this journal was uh, founded and started to publish, there was no dedicated forum in all the political science and international relations journal in the world that was actually focused on these questions. So advances the International Division of Labour in, in, in academic subjects that the whole, the big challenges, disappeared from view. Anyway, Global Policy is a new journal. If you'd like to see more about it, it's free online at the moment at globalpolicyjournal.com. One word, globalpolicyjournal.com. You may have heard this, me say this already, some of you, but we were complimented recently, Hernando, by someone saying that our website was so sexy, you ought to have to register somewhere you're 18 before you proceed <laughs> from the home page, which is not bad for a policy journal. All right, enough about the journal, and now Hernando de Soto, who is probably known to you all, but I will introduce him and sketch a little background for his presentation in case you do not know him as well as others here. Hernando de Soto was born in Peru, uh, but as a result of the coup there in 1948, he lived primarily in Europe until he was 38. Educated in Switzerland, he has since served on numerous boards. I will just list some of these and activities as an economist for the GATT as Managing Director of the Universal Engineering Corporation, as a Principal of the Swiss Bank Corporation, as a Governor of the Central Bank of Peru, as Personal Representative and Principal to the Peruvian President, Alberto Fujimori, before the self-style coup in 1992, and as Co-Chair with former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright of the Commission on Legal Empowerment of the Poor. But he is best known, of course, as the president and founder of that remarkable think tank, the Institute of Liberty and Democracy, established in Lima in 1981. The ILD, as it's known, was initiated as a result of an investigation started in 1979. Let me just tell you a couple of stories about it, because this is the context. Finding that he and others like him were spending too much time grappling with red tape and legal obstacles to doing business, Hernando de Soto hired two graduate students to conduct an investigation into Peruvian business law, counting the number of laws, codes, and regulations enacted in Peru since World War II. They found that the Peruvian governments, and he says this is typical of many third world countries, had been passing about 28,000 such laws and regulations per year, more than 100 new kinds of rules and regulations each working day. In a subsequent investigation, he s tried to set up a two-sewing machine garment factory in a Lima shanty town and attempted to determine how difficult it was to get it licensed. With the help this time of five university students, he's, they spent several hours a day grappling with Peruvian bureaucracy. They discovered that to obtain a legal license took 289 days, requiring 207 administrative steps in 52 different government offices and cost 30 times the average monthly minimum wage. He also found that in order to obtain a legal title for the piece of land to put the machines on required an additional 728 steps, taking up to three years. From these insights, and this is the key, he began to unlock a clear political and legal agenda. 
According to Hernando de Soto, it's the West's ability to unlock capital's potential and the failure to do so in developing countries that explains why capitalism triumphs in the West and too often fails elsewhere. Importantly, he argues, and this is the, one of the rubs, nubs of the matter, economic failure or stagnation is not a result of a lack of entrepreneurship or other such common factors. The reason there is failure, why there is so much dead capital, why there are barriers to the generation of wealth, is that so many people are excluded from the formal legal system. The ILD has, uh, has played a key role in the reform of Peru's legal systems, and since he and his team have been invited by over 30 heads of state to carry out its program in their countries. Hernando de Soto has, as a result, won many awards. I will just mention a few. The Templeton Freedom Prize, the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty, the Freedom Prize, and the Fisher Prize. He's also written two very important books. One, The Other Path. The other, The Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Triumphs in the West and Fails Everywhere Else. Please join me in giving this remarkable human being a very warm welcome. Thank you very much, David. First of all, I've got to uh, get on my feet. I've never been called a remarkable human being before, so I'm trying to get used to it. <clears throat> that was spontaneous. No, I noticed that. Better spontaneous than planned, David. Better spontaneous than planned. Not in my notes. Very good. Very good. I'll try and be spontaneous also because David started uh, uh, describing what, what I do, and that saved me a lot of words. And I've got to be able to uh, tell you a few things about us. I've never actually done this before. I speak a lot, but rarely in a university. Uh, most of the time it is uh, to the kind of people that hire us, which are governments, and uh, uh, people who are working directly in the field, which I'm sure is also, your, is also your case, but it's not a university setting. So before coming here to, to talk to you, I try to remember my university days, since I'm not an academic, and try to think, you know, what would I be interested to hear if somebody's going to come up with a thesis that a lot of people, of course, consider controversial. And I thought I'd give you sort of a, a history, a history of how, uh, after having been an entrepreneur, a CEO of different organizations, mainly in Europe, uh, I, and, before, and after returning to Peru, how all of this sort of started coming together with my colleagues at the ILD uh, in Peru, the, the think tank. Now we're not, we don't do as much thinking as we did before. We're now sort of like an action tank doing things uh, concretely with governments and trying to design and implement reforms. First of all, just one correction uh, there, David, because I think it's necessary. I uh, did leave uh, Peru in 1948, but it had a sort of tendency as if I had gone into conflict with government. It was my father, because I was only eight years old. Otherwise, you'd think I'm maybe 98 or something like that. <laughs> I'm getting there, but I'm not quite there yet. Okay, so I don't mean to be so self-centered, but I'd like to give you the intellectual evolution, simply because I've read some of the stuff that's been published 
about us in this great nation and in this great university and to try and let you know where I come from. You know, I just want to know you to know that it isn't that I was inspired by the Tea Party in the United States. It isn't that uh, I uh, you know, read Ronald Reagan and it shook me to my bones. It's an evolution. It's an evolution. My first concern when I went to Peru, where I wasn't even really thinking in terms of ideology, back in 1979 was I wanted to contribute. I was now going to be a citizen. I wanted to contribute to the growth of the country, fight poverty. It was obviously there. And try and find something that's successful because we've been unsuccessful and we've been unsuccessful for a long time. And uh, my arrival in Peru, and that of my colleagues uh, today at the ILD, uh, coincided with the initiation of a terrorist movement in Peru called The Shining Path which you referred to. And uh, I wrote a book against them called The Other Path. And uh, The Shining Path actually very much sort of guided our agenda. While we had thought before of doing certain studies, we, looked, we started looking at history books. We started looking at the recording system that the Spaniards had left that had been unopened to see if we could find some trace of entrepreneurship, find what was it that worked in Europe and didn't work with us, or worked in North America and didn't work in Latin America or Peru. And uh, the Shining Path just simply made us focus on one thing, which is that they were being successful in the sense that they were ensconced in different parts of the country. They obviously had following. Uh, and uh, we were not winning the war. We were being defeated. So at that moment, uh, the first thing that occurred to us is we don't have enough information as to what's going out there. What we should do is convince the government that we should have an institution. We call it the Defensor del Pueblo, the Defender of the People, where people could, according to the different shanty towns that we had mapped out, come and their leaders who are informal be recognized by government as the, as the genuine spokesman for these people and tell us where they thought, as we said, aprieta el zapato, where the shoe was hurting. Where was it that they really thought that was holding them back? What did they need the most? The interesting thing, uh, so we had the government approve the defender of the people. They created the organization. Basically, the organization was us, but it was legal, and we started providing consultations. Big meetings where uh, the complaints came in, and the complaints pointed out two things above everything else, which is we want to own our homes, and we want to own our businesses. Now, that to us was a, a very interesting, it was a very interesting reply. And therefore, we started concentrating on that. And that's how we started coming out with the results that you mentioned before, which is that we started looking at legal histories. We started setting up uh, simulations. How long does it take if we, the five, uh, the five people you talked about, David, how long does it take if we set up a little factory and you send one professor and four students to actually do the red tape all day long, just one sewing machine to get operated needed 278 days, as you mentioned, working eight hours a day. And if you actually established your home in the outskirts of town, where the shanties are, which is where the majority of people live in most third world countries, well, it took 17 years in Peru. By the way, not bad, considering it takes 25 in Manila, not bad considering it's 19 in Cairo. So all of a sudden, there were obvious hurdles. And so the question was, how do we take them out? Now, that to us was clear, but it was intelligentsia that was listening to us, not people who were in government. And so the other interesting part to us, and that was, that was marked by the presence of the Shining Path, was how come they're so popular? How come they're being hidden by people? Uh, and uh, the reply to that, we reasoned it out. Let's see, Marx has written 56 volumes, half of which have been translated from German into another language. 
Mao Zedong can't be that. It can't be that. These are poor people. They generally just don't read. They must be providing some kind of a service. That came to me as well from my entrepreneurial experience. And we, in effect, uh, went out and we went to the different places where they were dominating. Uh, we found out that it was pretty safe to do it as long as you did it uh, five days and then left. And we went to the coca fields where we produced the coca leaf in Peru from, when is, from whence it's elaborated cocaine and that hits the drug market. And we found out that the role they played was essentially the one of protecting their assets. And that was invaluable. And uh, it wasn't that we just saw it. It's because we produced the titles that they were handing out. And we were able to see the ledgers where the different coca growers and the slum leaders were told that they own the land and don't worry, the shining path shall protect you. So when it was clear that they were providing a very important function, so here are these Maoists protecting property, we told ourselves we got to do that too. And so then our argument went to, uh, to, to the government and went to, the, uh, the, uh, to, the, civil, uh, to uh, uh, the government in general and said, all right, we figured this out. This is our diagnosis. You've got to go out and title them. Now, the reason is not that you don't want to title them. The Constitution says, since our independence from Spain, that everybody has the right to property. It's part of the Declaration of Human Rights. So it's obviously not that they don't want it, because there's a shining path being very successful. It's that the law isn't allowing government to do it. So that allowed our first reform program to go ahead, which was the setting up of an organization in Peru that later came under the name of COFOPRI, specially directed to awarding rights to the poor, and therefore to us formalization, this to bring, bringing people under the rule of law, doesn't mean bringing them under the law as it exists today, but rather designing a law that is suited to their needs that is uh, filled up with their requirements and uh, that will award, them the, uh, will award them property rights. And since it was a matter of life and death, war and peace, we were able, and we realized, and you can always do that in dramatic situations, to pass the legislation, set up the organization, and now we have probably titled about 70 to 80 percent of, of uh, urban Peru and a little bit less half of, uh, of rural Peru. So uh, that meant, on the one hand, that the Shining Path had to move out of the countryside where we were titling in the coca fields because they were dropped, they were abandoned by the people they were protecting because now they had a better title, a better record, and they moved to the cities and then we started titling the cities until we actually reduced enormously the, uh, their, their range of activities and the properties themselves were, uh, helped us find them. Uh, I remember at that time we had a big white map behind and when people were titled, uh, uh, they, would, they, would, uh, they would say, okay, here's where you're being titled, this is the map, uh, here you've got your consensus, this is the law you're under, we've had three or four general assemblies where it's uncontested that you own this and you went from here to here, this is the global positioning system, and would you kindly mark it with a red point where the shining path is located, boom, thank you, and that's the way we defeated them, through property. So first thing I wanted to tell you is part of our intellectual evolution was strictly field work had no real ideology behind it. It was what works, what do poor people want, and strong enough to be able to, uh, strong, uh, creating a law strong enough so that it actually defeated the previous law, which obviously only helped uh, an oligarchy or helped those people who knew how to manage the system. Now, the, uh, the idea, therefore, there is what do we do? We're essentially like paleontologists. We take signs. 
that there was a dinosaur that we'd never seen a few million years ago, but seeing how it fossilized, we could see where the scars were, and build from the fossilized remains of the skeleton the whole body. We were able then to flesh it out. That's what we do. And then we started getting called from 36 different heads of state in different parts of the world. We met with one. And uh, there they basically say, I've got a shadow economy, measure it. Uh, and then afterwards find out what it takes them to get located, to have rights, to, to move ahead, to be integrated into the system. That's what we do. We learned that through experience. And we've been there. We've been in Cité Soleil. We've been called to Afghanistan. We've been in the Horn of Africa. And it's basically the same situation. What's the conclusion to that, for, for, uh, to us from that? Is that the law comes from the bottom up. Uh, we've tried in Peru, like in many developing countries, we've been thinking about property for 200 years since you began it in this part of the world. We will, it's, it's a sine qua non. You may want to be public, you may want it to be private, you may want a kibbutzim, you may want a kolkos, you may want a solkos, you may want to have a limited liability company, but people like to have their area determined, whether it's land, whether it's a business, whether it's an idea, whatever it is, but you've got somehow or rather the information, the social contract has got to be picked up. And it's a question of taking local symbols and converting them into universal symbols, standard ones that allow us all to communicate and be respected by the same law. But that wasn't to us, uh, of course, enough, because we started having also an intellectual evolution. The question to us was, well, bottom up, this is fine, but how do you, make, how do you sustain it? How does this actually help development? And then in that sense, uh, we started looking uh, closely at your history, the history of Europe, the history of the Western Northern civilization, and finding out how you got to it. And obviously, it wasn't necessarily in the old books, because we'd read Adam Smith. We'd read not all 56 volumes of Marx, but we had read some of them. We said how they saw how they all came together, and something was missing. And uh, so we went and uh, we started going to different countries into uh, not the books published, but into the uh, analysis, into the archives of the reform movement, especially since the second part of the 19th century. And by looking at it, what we saw was, was this. It was extremely interesting. It was while Adam Smith and Marx, both of them, agreed that it was the division of labor that was giving prosperity to Europe and was giving prosperity to the United States, uh, and everybody agreed, therefore, that specialization was a good thing. When the 19th century started off, and by the mid, uh, by mid, uh, by mid part of that century, it wasn't all a brilliant success. Recessions lasted sometimes 10 years, oh, 10 years, sometimes 15 years. Oliver Twist came to town. Not everybody was really happy. And uh, all governments were being toppled. Uh, and if, where they weren't being toppled, they were being unsettled. And uh, there were sicknesses. And so, yes, division of labor, 14 people making a pin, uh, making pins, as uh, Adam Smith said, allowed you to raise productivity. Uh, Marx used uh, the example of a locomotive, which uh, indicated it had 5,000 parts, and you also needed to bring things from different parts. Mead, of course, gave the wonderful example of eye pencil, even to make a pencil. 
you need uh, wood from Oregon, he was an American. You need graphite from Sri Lanka, the graphite breaks. You need candelia wax to make it a little bit softer from Mexico. Nobody likes, too, most people don't like white wood, so you have to tint it from, tint, uh, from uh, dyes that come from France. Uh, then uh, we make mistakes, so you want an eraser. Nobody likes a black eraser, so you take petroleum from Saudi Arabia, you make it pink, then you bind it together with a pencil, with a, uh, with a little sliver of metal that has a black nickel from Nigeria, zinc from Peru, copper from Chile, nine countries to make a pencil. So the cold question was division of labor is quite clear, but how do you bring that together? And that's what British philosophers called the binding problem. So the way we saw it from 1895, these other people, who nobody published, maybe they had bad pens, uh, maybe they had bad contacts, maybe they were just reformers, basically saw that the Industrial Revolution was in great conflict with the way society worked. There was definitely a confrontation, and how did you sort that out? So here on the one hand, you have the feudal system collapsing, patrimonialism collapsing, uh, you've got tribalism collapsing, the market surging, the enormous diversity, but how did all this knowledge come together so that entrepreneurs and government decision makers could make decisions as to how things were integrated, pencils, pins, and locomotives. And they found out as they went along that what was missing was actually someplace now where all those things that were before distributed in little feudal organizations or little patrimonial organizations, Asterix knew a little bit, Obelix knew another bit, you had to bring into some sort of like central places. And so they started creating, I'll, I'll give the, the place a name, because you haven't yet, public memory systems. They started recording and registering everything. Until today, practically anything, a boat, an airplane, a movie script, a house, a home, a business, ideas, everything is recorded in the West. It's a public memory system. And it's recorded in a way that allows you to keep track of it. And it allows you to keep track of it in a way that connects. Here's the part that was interesting. It was that as far as we can see in Europe at that time, the binding problem was everywhere. In other words, now you knew, you Westerners, that everything was made out of lots of little pieces, and the question was to find out how they came together. So Mischner in Switzerland, starts looking at the human body and says, okay, 32 million, 32 million cells. But why are some specialized in becoming fingernails? Why are some specialized in becoming livers and the other ones in pancreas and the other ones in eyes? What directs all of the diversity into forming an organic whole? And he discovers in 1856 DNA. And it's a nucleic acid which all it has is information organized in such a way that it gives instructions. If you go and try in biology and you look at Oaxhill and the whole idea of how the umwelt is organized, how a frog goes out and hunts and does things, how his eyesight comes together with his sound, with his sound and his, the rest of his sensory equipment, again, it's all these scientists trying to find out how things come together, as opposed to the 18th century this is a Peruvian point of view, where everything is how you spread it out. It's all about democracy. This is how you, now that you have democracy, now that you've got to split it out, how do you bring it together? 
And with these other people who didn't publish DNA and didn't publish the other things, they brought it together. These were the memory system. But they did something extraordinary, as far as we're concerned, unrecorded. Now, you would say, how does a non-Westerner, as I was classified today, I think, by Niall Ferguson, uh, how does a non-Westerner, face-to-face, by the way, so this was said in great, uh, with great friendship, he said, how does, a, how does it that somebody like me can dare come to London School of Economics and tell you Europeans that you did something you didn't spot? Easy. Einstein said it, what does the fish know about the water in which it swims? So you're the fish, I'm outside, and I can tell you what was done then. <laughs> you basically did something that later on Bertrand Russell worked in, and after Bertrand Russell, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, which was, how do you put a fact together? What's a fact made out of? Now, it's interesting, because I looked at the, I looked at the dictionary, 19th century, and there you Brits define the fact as being, as being an occurrence, a happening, a deed. Today, that's not what it's defined as. Today, it's defined as a statement that, in standard terms, describes a truth or something that can be tested for truth. And that's what you did. Because in the records, around what seemed to be simply unidimensional, here's Mr. Jones, who owns that horse, you actually not only said something about a thing, but you started talking about its relationships. And that's what Wittgenstein later has said, of course, having learned all of this from Bertrand Russell, when he was asked to define the universe, he said, the universe is things in relationship to each other. One brilliant phrase, the way only you Europeans know how, except the Chinese, know how to bring it out. (laughs) One concrete phrase in relationship to each other. So we're all made up of things, my 32 million cells, in relationship to each other in a certain way. All right. Now the thing interesting is that all your property registries not only start recording the things, but Mr. Jones and his wife own this, and they have a debt, and they have an encumbrance, and they have an easement, and they have this, and they have that, and they have the other, and they've got a credit, and they've got a mortgage, they've got a super mortgage, they've got a subprime mortgage. They've got a subdivided some kind of uh, some kind of financial interest, and they've received an investment. And they've got this, and their kids could have it. But then again, there could be eminent domain, and Mr. Obama has said that he really wants to own it. It can only be used, and provided nobody goes to jail. All of a sudden, you were able to take something that does isn't tangible and isn't and isn't concretized as a body, a relationship, and you were able to describe it in standard terms, because relationships exist, but the only way that you can touch them is in writing. And that's what you were able to do. But it wasn't somebody, the system evolved over time. So all your records of property things, whatever it is that you own, a a credit debt obligation or whatever it is, a credit default swap, all these things exist on paper. That's where you capture them. They're nowhere else. They're very important. We know relationships are important. A kiss can lead to a baby nine months later. I mean, relationships are important. A slap in the face can lead to a war. A hole in the ground can take out 33 Chilean miners in no time. So relationships are important, but the place where you capture them are in your property records. So first thing I want to establish, I'm not a conservative Reaganite. I come to these things. And we come to these things in my place because we find out that there's a real important contribution there, which is you're the first people to actually capture relationships, things which are invisible. 
And it's done on what basis? Who wrote the book? Nobody wrote the book. You just simply put into a property document or into a property recording system what is useful to other people so that the division of labor can take place wherever it is that you are. So from our point of view, the property system and the business rights system is the DNA of the market economy. And you've got to preserve it, come hell or high water, because otherwise the system collapses. And why doesn't the property system work in developing countries? Because most of the records and relationships are not in the papers, they are not in the documents, they're not within the law, and they can't be tested for truth. <clears throat> and it's got to be in writing. So none of this stuff, from my point of view, unless, of course, the natives want something different, of saying, why don't you leave them alone for Pete's sake? They have their traditions. They rub noses. They give signs from abroad. They listen to the lake. They hear the river speaking. They talk to the mountain. Don't write it down. You have to write it down. You have to write it down to protect them. And let me tell you why. That is, if they want it. Helen Keller, educated by Ann Sullivan, is asked, uh, you remember, Helen Keller was this blind little girl. She was uh, a deaf little girl, and she had no contact with reality. And Ann Sullivan, who was helping her along, tries to make her connect to reality. How does she do that? She does it through language. And what she, at one of the breaking moment, it seems, is that when they open the faucet, the water starts coming out, they put her left hand under the water, she's right, and then on the other one, I forget, it was Braille or Morse, or, or Cor Mo Mo uh, uh, Morse code, is typed water. And she makes the relationship. As a result of that, even though she's blind and she's deaf until she, she becomes an intellectual, she writes books. And then somebody asks her, uh, tell me, how is it that you, before you were seven or eight or wherever the breakthrough came, and through language she was all able to perceive reality, how is it that you thought before you knew language? And she replied, there is no such thing as a wordless thought. So to us, you got property, you put it, you record it, you put it in the Western system, and it starts working. Otherwise, you can be a happy anthropologist and say, no, no, it exists in the air. And I talk to the river, and I talk to the mountain, but until you get it in writing, a multinational will come over and take you over anytime, and you're Helen Keller. Now, third, I'm trying to look at the time. We Latin Americans have a tendency to extend ourselves. That is cultural. Now, how does that relate to today? Because obviously the question that's going to come from you or from David, at least I was thinking this before, was going to be, well, if it's such a good system, look at the crisis. How do you account for that? Well, I'll tell you how I account for that. I'm in the process of that. I'm writing a book called No Facts. Here it is, 2008, September 2008. I see Secretary of the Treasury Paulson going on television. I forget where I was, Addis Ababa, CNN clip, and he goes and he says, we're in a terrible situation. We have found that uh, many banks have got non-performing assets. We call them derivatives, and uh, uh, there's going to be a run on the banks, and I have to get these assets and out of the banks. And they say, well, very fine, and I need to buy them about $780 billion, nearly $1 trillion. The GNP of the United States is about $15 trillion. He gets on his knees. He literally gets on one knee in front of Nancy Pelosi in the U.S. Congress and says, please give me the money. And Nancy Pelosi sees him with a knee on the ground and says, gee, I didn't know you were Catholic. This is true. But she gives him the money. Good. I say, this makes sense. You know, Keynesian good Keynesian economics, you go in, you buy the bad stuff, you throw money at the system. 
Then all of a sudden, about three weeks later, I see him coming up again. I forget where I am, but it's CNN. And he says, look, uh, I've just been talking to my good friend, uh, Gordon Brown. We're not going to go out and buy these troubled assets. And he'd set up a program called the Trouble Assets Relief Program. He'd gotten money for that, and there he goes, like a Latin American dictator, and said, I'm not going to buy them. What we're going to do, this is Gordon's bright idea, we're going to toss that money to the banks, and we're going to make sure that they've got such steady balance sheets that now nobody's going to make a run on the bank. It's alternative. It obviously worked. The run on the banks uh, stopped. But then... I went to Washington. And I've got very good friends in Washington because one of the good things about being uh, a remarkable person, as David said, <laughs> recognized in the United States, lauded by uh, conservatives worldwide round, I said, uh, I'm going to ask them because, you know, I'm the kind of guy that can approach literally heads of state. I said, I'm going to tell Hernando everything because if he's Peruvian, what does it matter? <laughs> and so I went. Some of my friends at the Treasury and some of my friends at the White House, and I said, Why did Secretary Paulson change policies? Have I done something wrong? No, I, I, I think your tie is, is affecting this. We could just, <laughs> I'm just trying to ensure your tie doesn't keep changing it's what's a, on the screen. It's a very nice tie, thank you. <laughs> I wore it especially for you. So I asked uh, my good friends, whom I will not give their names, and quote, and I said, why didn't he take it out of the banks? And why didn't he, why didn't he buy it and take it out of the banks? And I said, well, because Secretary Paulson couldn't find them. I said, oh. Now, don't forget, I'm into recording things and finding things. And trans I'm a paleontologist. So I naturally reacted, though we obviously nobody else reacted like my colleagues did and said, what? In the West? You can't find something? The only people who hide in the United States are Latin immigrants like myself. <laughs> and so, I hereby announce to you, and it's the truth, that you've got everything in the West recorded except your financial derivatives, and there's $680 trillion of them. $680 trillion. The United States produces $15 trillion per year of GNP. The Brits, the Peruvians, the Chinese, the Russians, all together, we produce $60 trillion, and you've got 600, you Westerners, who started the tradition of memory, have $680 trillion of pieces of financial paper floating around, and you don't know where they are. And that's the basic of your practice. Because you see, the way the capitalist system is structured is that when you get a bubble and it bursts, immediately all these vultures go around and find the deficiencies. And they sort out the deficiency, they fix it, and that's how the system recuperates itself. Basic Adam Smith, one, two, three. That's the way it works. But they're not finding them. And the recession keeps on going on. And you're tossing trillions of dollars at the system to keep the banks alive, and the unemployment keeps on being there, and everybody says, we're on the road to recovery. Road to recovery? What are you talking about? You know we're not on the road to recovery. In, 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 and also, you're, instead of saying you got one big dip, you're saying it's a double dip. What do you mean double dip? It's the same dip that you've just simply kicked forward. <laughs> so then you go and you begin studying. So we've started studying a little bit. Not a developing country now, but develops countries. What have we seen? Well, your credit, credit debt obligations, which are mortgages taken and packaged and diced and sliced, 
and practiced in a certain way to get the financial mar market are not recorded. At least there's not a central recordation system. You could say, well, but they're recorded. Look, information is effective depending on how you package it. The United States, as Judge Posner used to say, was full of rumors and information that the Japanese were going to bomb them at Pearl Harbor. But since everybody was saying it, but no, it didn't go through a particular channel, nobody listened to it. Information to be effective has got to be channeled. It's got to be directed. It's not directed in credit default obligations. It's not directed in mortgage-backed securities. The mortgages are not there. If you pick up your papers today, Google foreclosures, United States today. They're not being able to foreclose things because the documents are missing. You got sloppy. Banks have two balance sheets. You go to a big bank and say, you're broke. No, we're not broke. We've now created a bad bank where we've put all our debts. And we've got now a good bank, which are good debts. Look at our balance sheets. They're clean. Hey, we Latin Americans have been trying that on you for ages, and you don't let us get away with it. You literally have two books. Can you imagine it? That's what the informal economy is about. But in your cases, we got bad books and we got good books. And you're all believing it. Shame, shame, shame on you. Then, next thing, you've got variable interest entities where you park some of the assets, so it's not only and in special purpose vehicles. You've got people that have gone for credit valuation adjustments. What does that mean? Well, I'm a Peruvian. If I've got in my reserve so much copper, I've got to say copper, and then I look up Financial Times Index and say, this is the cost. That's it. But no, in your case, you've got to have fair value. Fair value. You sound like the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development. What do you mean, fair value? Fair value is that you don't put the market value anymore, but this allows your different entities to look a little bit better, and therefore, you push away that ghost, which could be recession for a while. You've got currency swap derivatives, whereby the Greeks, for example, can take their debt, sell it in the currency market, forward, and make the credit that goes in for them to do that purchase look like actually a flow of income that's come in, and so Greece looks good. And then all of a sudden, Greece breaks to pieces, and you say, how did that happen? Credit default swaps. In derivative instruments, and sovereign debts are kicked into the future. If not, you can go to the repo market and get some of the easy money, none of which is bad. It just depends if you report it or you don't report it. And, the re and, and, and therefore, a good but bad situation starts looking good. You used to have statistics that said M3. M3 went, you know, you have three types of monetary categories, or at least four types. M3 are all those sort of things that, uh, uh, that, that are have moneyness. Friedrich von Hayek, who I believe taught here, used to say, it's a pity that we talk about money. We should talk about moneyness. Why? Because not only currency is money. There's a lot of things that you've got in your pocket that you can pay debts with, and that has to be quantified. That was a very good idea, because that tells you how much money is circulating, and therefore you can infer inflation or deflation. It's not precise, but it gives you an idea of volumes. And uh, now you don't have M3 statistics, at least not in the United States. And then rating agencies. I, I mean, a, an agency is always helpful. It's always good somebody to say, you know, London School of Economics sounds familiar. Well, look, they're one of the best universities in the world. Uh -huh. Good rating. But if rating agencies take over and instead of getting a good memory record, you get somebody that grades you. And on top of that, they have an oligopoly, which is a special contract with the government that says, if you don't get rated, I can't give you this and I can't give you that. 
and they get an intellectual property right on that, all of a sudden you're disinformed. In other words, the West is as blind as a bat today and it's going to get worse. I can't see it getting any better. Because essentially the capitalist system is a system of trust. And trust is credibility, credit, credibility. I believe you because I've got a standard statement that allows these things to come together. Now, I got to the end of my speech. So, what do I do? What do we do? Well, what we try to do is essentially bring memory systems and the rule of law to developing countries. And we think that the West has created a series of various important institutions to do so. And uh, these various institutions that do, that do this are taken for granted in the West because they were not done by you, they were done by your great-great-granddaddies who are to be commended for it. And uh, you've forgotten about it to the point that I heard some American politician the other day say, ah, we'll get over this recession. Uh, I'm a very good friend of the Americans, by the way, but this particular politician obviously didn't get it. We're, I mean, here we are. We've got, he told me, a great country full of natural resources, hardworking people, and two oceans from shining sea to shining sea. And I remember asking, are you talking about Mexico or <laughs> are you talking about the United States? It's not your natural resources. We've probably got a lot more than you do. For every one hole dig, dug in Latin America, you have got 300 holes dug in North America. What makes you what you are are your institutions. And what makes some of your institutions uh, so important are property records, which are the DNA of the market economy system. And when they don't work, you shall collapse. Thank you. Well, thank you for a fantastically engaging lecture and also a very entertaining one. And uh, I look forward to having dinner with you afterwards because I know it's going, to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. It gets better with a glass of wine. It does. So, but at the, moment, at the moment, we can only offer you water. And uh, I've noticed your glasses over there, but let's, we'll come, we'll, I'll get you a glass in a minute. But let me just, let me just uh, uh, reflect for a moment on your main thesis, which you stated at the end, that property system is the DNA of markets. And by property system, you don't just mean laws that codify, but flexible legal systems that allow people access and the capacity to maneuver in the system in order to codify and protect what it is that they have and to create incentives for development. Um, but you know as well as I do that economic development just doesn't depend on this kind of information system. If we look, for example, at um, competition between the West and Asia over the last 30, 40 years, I mean, we've been telling them all the time to be like us, to open your markets, to liberalize your markets, to do two things, really. In fact, I had a debate here some, a couple of years ago with Martin Wolf before he saw the life and converted to social democracy. He's the uh, editor of the uh, uh, economic editor of the Financial Times. And his basic argument was, in the spirit of the times, is that marketization and liberal market integration of the global economy are the keys to development. All else is rhetoric. Okay? But all else isn't rhetoric. If we go and the West preach this one model, let's call it the Washington Consensus, open up your markets and so on, 
This had disastrous impacts on some countries as a model and was more beneficial under restricted conditions elsewhere. But what do we find? We find that the countries that introduced this model, let's say in Latin America most avidly, are the ones which often suffered the worst deterioration in their economic circumstances. And the countries that resisted it because they had stronger states, control over markets, planning, some elements of planning, they refused to float their currency, they gave infant industries some protection, Vietnam, India, China, they did better. How do you account for that? <laughs> well, um, through various things. Uh, first of all, let's find out how well they've done, David. Okay. All right? The GNP of Peru and Ecuador, the GNP of Peru and Guatemala is still higher than one of China. I mean, it's great to know that as a country they're big and, you know, they're 1,300, 1,300,000,000 million people. So they've done well, but they're still a developing country. And as you know, at the initiation of whatever it is you do, it works. And they've also liberalized. And don't forget that in the case of China, they've distributed 300 million property titles. All the East Coast is recorded. Otherwise, you couldn't buy anything that's Chinese. How could a British company buy anything from someone who couldn't prove that it was theirs? How could you get a bill of lading to put on a ship and send it to Britain, whether it's a T-shirt or whether it's a camera, unless it's recorded? So the first thing is, they've done what you've talked about. They stayed in control the way the United States did in the 19th century. And Britain. And Britain. But they still gave out, like Britain and the United States, they still gave out property. So I'm not, if you may have seen, my argument didn't go on the freedom of trade. We can go to that part of that. I just said that one of the crucial ingredients was the identification of the assets and understanding situations. In other words, you get to the situation via the asset. Mr. Jones owns this, in what circumstances, the different ripples of information, and that allows you to take decisions whether you are a public company or a private company. So what happens in the case of China is that many of these companies that are exporting are actually public companies, which again indicates that maybe being private property isn't the crucial factor at the beginning but the important thing is having property. As you may have seen, and where we go, wherever we go, we don't give people private property. We find out what they want. If they're a tribe, if they're communal, if they're a kibbutzim, if they're a cold cost, they're a sole cost, we title what they've got. How they evolve is another thing. So what we're seeing at the early stages of China is that they've got property. Everyone who's exporting, and every bank you're dealing with has got property. The next thing is India. I mean, India is a marvelous example of development as you're getting along. But let's not forget that 11% of India is in the formal sector. So when you see Bangalore, and you see the incredible progress that they've made in the high technology, all of these bright Indians getting into information technology. I was recently in India, and I was asking, I was talking with Prime Minister Singh, and said, you know, how many people do you think are working in information technology? He said, oh, 30 million? I said, fine. And then you've got this nanotechnology, the nano car that's coming up. How many people? 10, 15 million? We're still talking about 1 billion, 100 million people. And all that growth is generally coming from this other sector. 57% of India still gets warm on frying cow dung. So what you've got to understand is that these countries are looking to us today the way Argentina was looking like to you at the Second World War, where you said, my God, they're going to take over. But they didn't. So what I'm saying is these countries have property, 
but they're still in a very dangerous situation. Why? Because even in Europe, the really progressive governments, which started giving property very early on, compared to you Brits, were the French and the Germans. You Brits actually resisted. And your oligarchic classes put in the enclosures and resisted. And the countries that got into trouble were the ones who started giving away property, because once you started giving it, you can't stop. The neighbors got it, and the other guys got it, so you want it too, and then comes the French Revolution. So all of these countries are at a very dangerous stage in the sense that they now have, not us, Latin Americans, we had the highest Gini factors. Remember the yeah. distance between the rich and the poor. They're not now ours. The records are now Chinese. So what I'm trying to say is that it's a complex situation in which property prevails, and what you're saying is that at the beginning, it looks like it's controlled, but the game ain't over. Well, I, I, we can come back to that. I'm sure people in the audience will want to come back to that. I mean, just as I see it, that, that I think your argument is obviously critical. You can codify a number of different things. You can create access to a number of different things. So that your interventions in different countries are not following, now I understand the argument better, a single prescriptive model. You're saying there are different ways to prosperity, but all of them require certain common conditions which is codification, creating access, common memory. Condition. Common condition. Memory is a condition common of exchange. As a condition Shared of exchange. Yes. Okay. On, on China, we'll come back to that later. I have a slightly different view, because China has been growing, as has India, for 8, 9, 10% for a substantial period of time. China has lifted 300 million people out of uh, poverty. In, well, there's no historical precedent for that. The Chinese economy is likely to be the single biggest economy in the world in maybe less than 10 years. But more than that, these are now surplus economies. They are huge surplus economies which give them enormous maneuverability when in the West, now I'm going to come back to the West, we have these vast debt overhangs now, stagnation and stagnant growth. All right, let's, not, let's leave the Asia out of it for a minute and come back to the West. Your argument about the financial crisis really suggests that as a result of the financial instruments that were created, we've blown it and that there's no way back in a sense, I heard you saying, that the Western economies, particularly the Anglo-American economies, have, in a sense, reached a stagnant point, that the interventions have made things worse, not better. And are you really saying that if you were President of the United States when this came, or when, if you had been uh, 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 President Obama, who came to office as the worst possible moment, really, for any president since the Second World War, that you would have just thrown your hands up, or what would you have done? Well, hindsight is always to one's advantage, of course. But the first thing that is, is important to realize is, is that it's not over. All I'm trying to say is that the deep foundations of the system, which are 200, 150 years away, for North Americans as to North Europeans, is based on the fact that, first of all, you were not only able to divide labor, but you were able to have knowledge on who everybody else was. Because, you know, we may all be brothers and sisters in this world, but there's about seven billion of us. There's no way of understanding who's who without some kind of a central memory system, and you actually have it. In other words, the invisible hand of Adam Smith isn't invisible at all. It's in your memory systems. Right. Right. So what I'm saying is that you've ignored that for your financial instruments. And since your financial instruments are the ones who basically own those assets because you finance them and they're non-performing, uh, what you've got to do is restore the memory. But you've got to understand that you've got to restore the memory. 
That's, my own, that's the only thing I'm saying. And restore the memory is something that anybody could do because you set up the memory systems in the first place. It's just simply important to understand that uh, nobody did this. This wasn't like a scheme. It was simply that, for example, one professor said, I think we should divide our faculty in law between uh, property rights and contracts. And then all of a sudden somebody said, yeah, property, you have to record, but contracts, no. But yet contracts are an asset. And that's what you were going to buy when you had the Troubled Assets Reform Program. So it's a problem of terminology. Just accept that certain things are contract, but they're assets as well, and everything's got to be recorded. And once you've got everything recorded, then you know who owns what. I mean, what is the first thing a bank asks of us when we ask them for a loan? First your name, and then where you live, and what you own. They wouldn't even dream of giving you a cent if you didn't record what you had. So that has been the basis for credit, credibility. But how That's do you do that? From. When you've got these trillions and trillions of dollars locked into hedge instruments, financial complex financial instruments, you can, of a scale that dwarfs the size of the US economy by multiples, how do you recode this? in such a way that you can, I mean, it seems to me that this is process is going to take generations. And in the meantime, in the meantime, you need economic policy. Well, it is about economic policy. That you're absolutely right, David. But here's the way, here's the way it goes. Freud started off by saying, you know, when does the solution come? And he said something about to the effect, you know, where the id was, the ego shall be which means where there was unconscious consciousness shall be. And so when you are conscious that you really hated your mother, all of a sudden you feel okay. Right? That's more or less the way it works. So what I'm saying is this. I don't have a policy detail because until we get the facts of who owns what, we're not going to be able to do policy. What I'm saying is that before you do policy, you got to know what you're facing. Unless you think that you can invade countries because they've got an unspecified number of weapons of mass destruction. So what you've got to learn in the West, again, that counting before you do policy is important. <laughs> now, you've got to start counting. Once you count and you know who's where and who's got whose hands in whose pocket, then you can do things. Now, I agree that it's not always that way, but here's the thing. There's a hundred solutions that came out before the policy decisions were taken, which you're absolutely right, came out before Obama came into power. He inherited the mess, but it's now his. right? So here's, a, here's a, the, what they said. The first thing is governments take, for example, an interest, a providing interest or controlling interest in the difficult banks, and therefore you're telling everybody maybe God's not behind this, but the United States government and the British government's behind it. That's one way. Alan Greenspan talked about himself. He said nationalize them for a while. Another one is you set up insurance programs and you say, when we find out who's got the bad stuff and who's got the good stuff, Let's make sure that the people who are saving are protected. There's a hundred ways to do the transition. The question is, have you heard of any profession, from the medical profession to the physical profession, to getting to the moon, that you can do anything without knowing the basics? So the first thing I do, I'm just asking is, let's get to know the basics. This was the tradition of the West. The West was always able to say, my God, we failed. Now let's correct it. Who came around and said, we haven't failed. We're still doing just dandy, the Soviets. All right, so if you don't know your failures, you can't make corrections. So all I'm saying is this, let's find out what the policy you have to do is, but let's also start counting. Stop these weapons of mass destruction. 
stop these financial instruments that are not recorded, let's get the facts, and then you can operate. What do you think explains this collapse of memory, as it were? If the innovations were here, if the recording systems were here, as the, if the property systems were here that were spurred to market growth and market development, and if the conditions were right for this extraordinary period of history of Western development, what suddenly froze this system, in your view? Froze the memory banks, the recording systems? Was it just the ingenious nature of the financial markets? Was it just their capacity to, to invent at such speed new financial instruments that you know, we lost control over what they were doing? Or what, in your judgment? Well, I think there can be various explanations. We're only just, really, we're only just about to get into it uh, as a society, as, uh, as supposedly learned people. First of all, there's nothing wrong with financial instruments. Let's just know what they're doing. Uh, I mean, finance, uh, Adam Smith said it very clearly, finance is there to support production, not the other way around. And he said it, you know, both him and Marx said, money basically takes asset, liquid, liquidity from those who save to those who need it. It's the wheel that turns around and provides, but it doesn't produce any corn, it doesn't produce any wheat, it doesn't produce anything. We've got things sort of like the other way around. And all of a sudden, we're finding out that if it's finance, you don't record it. You've got to record everything else. You've got to record your fingerprints. You've got to record, I mean, go through an airport and find out all the things you have to record. And all of a sudden, there's one part of the world that we can't record. Something's wrong. Okay? Uh, that's the first thing. So nothing wrong with financial instruments. Nobody's attacking the financial instruments. Nobody's attacking the hedge funds. It's just, it's important to know what's going on. It takes a little bit more time, but it's important to know what's going on. Secondly, there's another thing that can explain it. Of course, Mansour Olson said it, you know, that societies, you know, are born with enlightened people and after a while they forget. And so he said, I mean, I'm not subscribed to what he said, but in a way he was sort of saying uh, Mao Zedong was right, you need a little cultural revolution once in a while or some kind of a shock to start thinking out because things don't just go in perpetuity. And the second thing, of course, about the word property is that uh, when you're in a developing country and you start talking about property to the poor, they'll say, of course, what they want is more property to have it secure. But in the Western world, the word property is loaded. It's loaded so that it makes you think of the rich protecting their stuff, which may be true. And I've tried to find a different word for it. And in this uh, commission that we chair at the UN on the legal empowerment of the poor with Madeleine Albright, of which we've got Larry Summers, by the way, and Gordon Brown, uh, Good luck. Thanks. <laughs> they, they said at that, uh, at that moment, it was originally called the Commission on Property Rights for the Poor. And half the assembly didn't want that, so we ended up calling it legal empowerment because the word property was all wrong. So around the issue, I'm trying to find another word. Is it the recordings? That's why I invented the public memory systems. But the fact is, it's a memory. It's a memory that allows you to know every time what the situation is, where it is. Nothing can happen with it, I mean, without it. Just one little example in case you're, people haven't seen it. I came into this wonderful and beautiful country, and uh, as I came in, they asked me what my name was. And I said, I'm very glad you asked that. I'd like to identify myself. I'm very happy to do so. Hernando de Soto Polar de Haru Arteche Landazuri Vargas Jimenez Enriquez at your service. And they said, what? And I said, well, some of my ancestors came from Italy, the other ones came from Spain. They must have intercrossed also with the little Peru and said, just show me your passport. Yes. <laughs> a fact. What's this made up? It's a series of relationships because I'm me. I'm here. But this thing says, it's got a picture of me, 
right? There's a little machine that reads it, and everything is relationships. Am I married? Where was I born? Where am I employed? Hundred types of relationships. Now, that is necessary for me just to cross your border. I am a friendly guy. So the question is the following thing. The whole system, don't forget I'm remarkable. The whole system, <laughs> the whole system. That doesn't make you friendly. <laughs> the whole system of seven billion people doesn't work without passports. You've got to have everything we know from Immanuel Kant until today is an internal representation of what's abroad. We never see things directly. We know things because we have instruments that allow us to bring things together. Even if, you, if, even if, if somebody gives you a, a medicine, it's a prescription. I, I want to ask you one last question before the audience comes in. Uh, and it's just something that worries me about the way you think and the way you present this analysis. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I can say it uh, uh, very clearly this time of night <laughs> on a Friday, but I'll uh, without a glass of wine. Politely, I, I just will, politely. I will, I will try. Um, it, it, is, it is that you put the emphasis on the encoding of property. Uh, property is the DNA of markets, the DNA of, of development. But doesn't this bracket the whole question of the type of property, the type of property relations? And doesn't the type of property relations often translate into different conditions of development that some flourish and some don't? I was very struck by this when I listened to your answer just now on the financial markets. You said there's nothing wrong with financial markets, there's nothing wrong with the banking system, nothing wrong with financial instruments. I tend to take the view, and I can see why you'd think that from the argument that you've made, but I tend to take the view that the genie of finance was released from the lantern roughly around 1979 and 1980, that the banking system became disproportionate in relation to the rest of the economy, especially in the Anglo-American world. We produced these gigantic banks that were too big to fail. They were able to dictate the terms of policy to the political system before the crisis, after the crisis, and now you can have a glass of champagne with a trader in the financial markets, and you ask them, what has changed in 2010? They say, nothing. It is not just property here. It's the type of economic and political property relationships. True or false? I d define economic property relationships. Sorry. Well, in this, what I'm trying to say in this particular instance is your, in your response to, to my question about the financial markets, didn't something go wrong? You said there's nothing wrong with banking, there's nothing wrong with financial uh, institutions and so on. Uh, and I am saying actually what that misses is the whole sort of a political economic analysis of the types of banks we have, the size of these sectors, the way they grew, the way they then dictated to the rest of the economy yep. terms of trade and economic growth. And unless you crack some of that, which is practically now impossible, mm -hmm. the banks and the financial sector in certain economies will remain dominant to the detriment of the productive right. sector, the commercial sector, and so on. Right. What you're saying is Property is not the only issue at hand, and I couldn't agree more with you. It's the type of property I'm saying. Sometimes the trumps. Well, no. Oh, I'm saying that too. I'm saying that these banks were given the authority, were basically allowed, though nobody knew what was happening. I'm sure the banks weren't conscious of it at all. It just simply was good business. Were given the possibility, because I mean, one of these financial instruments, by the way, let's go back to these financial instruments, what they say. 
These financial instruments say, this amount of money goes here, or this amount of money goes there, or I will guarantee this amount of money coming to you in such amount of time with reference to this asset or this underlying, underlying asset. So none of these instruments would exist if there weren't the assets in the first place. And what I'm trying to say is simply, first thing, first thing of all, we should know what it is that these banks are handling. That's one thing. What you're saying is that there's another consideration in hand, which is uh, at the end, what, also, what is clearly also happening is that these financial institutions have now got a lot more power than the governments, and they've got them with their back against the wall. And of course, that is another issue. What I'm doing is adding to that issue. What I'm saying is that you're only going to get from a situation where you've got your back to the wall to where you are today if you can make a case. While today everybody says you must understand these are very complicated and complex instruments, don't bother your pretty little head about it. We'll talk to you once we finance pipes gets together with your heads of state. All right? And what I'm trying to say is that you can get you can get out of the situation you're in, first of all, by saying, I do want to bother my pretty little head, and there's no reason for all this complexity. Because at the end, it can, it can be enormously simplified. We're always able to understand it. But we're not going to be able to understand it when you've got one type of property for automobiles here, or maybe two. You buy it or you lease it. And then for derivatives, you've got about 140. So until you're standardized, of course it's going to be complex. It's as complex as going to a tribe in Africa and saying, how is it that they live? Because it's not recorded, because it's not standardized. It's as complex as your electrical system at the end of the 19th century, where you had about 100 types of uh, voltages, 32 plugs, I think it was in Britain. And then somebody said, one plug, one voltage, one nation. So until you get, <laughs> until you get from the disorder of the informal economy into understanding these things, you're not going to be able to beat back the banks because for the moment, their biggest instrument is this is too complex for people in general, just okay. leave it to us guys. That's so I'm not denying what you're saying, I'm just again simply saying, you get informed and then you find out how you're going to do. Is it chemotherapy? Are you going to do radiation? Are you going to go into surgery? But first of all, locate the cancer. The dissertative position, well defined. All right, thank you. Thank you. Now, the audience. I'm going to take questions in clusters so we can get lots of questions out. Is that right? We'll take four or five questions. And uh, if you could pass some water over here, that would be great over here for you. And uh, let's wear the mics. Mike, 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 gentlemen at the front, we'll start here. Could you say who you are with a brief question? Thank you. Yeah, good evening. Gary Hayes, HGen, uh, Renewable Power uh, Generation. Um, in 1997, Brown gave away the Bank of England, and um, I'm looking for $680 trillion worth of debt. Where do I go and knock? So, sorry, I did catch a question. Sorry, sir. Uh, okay. Brown, in 1997, gave away the Bank of England. Now, normally, I could go there and knock on the door and say, where's my $680 trillion worth of debt? Um, but now I have to go to the BIS, or where? Can you tell me? I don't think, you know, that anybody really knows. Uh, the first time I got an inkling that there were derivatives, because I, I work in developing countries and I supposedly work with poor people or with people who are outside the system in the shadow economy. I wouldn't have dared even touch the subject unless I'd seen a shadow economy, because I know a shadow economy when I see one. 
So when I saw that the West had the world's largest shadow economy, I started getting interested. <laughs> but here's the way I started getting into it. I don't know the theory behind banking, but I got some idea of the numbers. The first time I heard that there was 680 trillion, at that time it was uh, 600 trillion, was from Chris Cox, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. He starts writing when the crisis starts going. He starts writing articles in the Wall Street Journal because it's basically under his responsibility. And he says, well, these are derivatives. They're the credit default swaps, the credit interest swaps, the CDOs, there's this, yeah. there's that, and the other. And there's about 600, remember, there's about 600 trillion of them. I say, interesting. And then about two months later, the Bank of International Settlements comes out with its statements about what liquidity is in the world. And it says, there's one quadrillion, 200 trillion of them. I don't know. <laughs> that is exactly the reason why I'm saying it would be a very good idea to get the information. All I can tell you is that in a shadow economy, which is the characteristic of most developing and former Soviet nations, the reason you can't really prosper, or it's concentrated at the top, or the reason you can't really move ahead is the lack of information. And that's what's happening. If at this moment I told you all of this was, or 30% of this is in Bank X, you'd have a run on the banks. And that's exactly what's being tried to avoid now. And what they're trying to do, obviously, is push the thing forward and try and find a way out through a soft landing. And everybody's thinking as they walk along. I don't think anybody knows. Because otherwise, you can make a lot of business out of this. I right. Don't think You're not allowed to answer the questions yet, because we want to get four or five out. Oh, sorry, so, sorry. the lady over there. No, but it was a good answer, though. <laughs> yes. uh, hi. I was wondering how possible and effective would it be to do all these credit default swaps, derivatives into a record, into a central recording system, and who should be the ones to do it? The government, the banks, or an external organization? Hold that thought. Yeah, um, look, we get, yeah look, we've got quite a few here, and we'll come up to the back in a minute. Just pass the mic along, and there's so many people who want to ask questions. So just brief questions. Hi, I'm Rodrigo Aguilera from the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I studied so social policy and development here at LSE. And if, um, if assigning property rights were that easy, then I probably would have saved £13,000 for my master's degree. Uh, from my point of view, development is much more complex than that. And before you set up the property rights, there's plenty of preconditions that you have to get right. Because even if you have uh, a paper that tells you that you own a house, there's no guarantee that a bank is actually going to give you a loan and accept your house as a collateral. Uh, infrastructure is dismal in many parts of the developing world. Um, you have technological constraints, labor constraints, and market constraints. And these things took 500 years or more for Europe to get right before they got the property system right. So um, my question is, don't you think these are priorities? Hands up, up in the middle. Yeah, pass the mic forward. Yeah. Hi, thank you very much. Okay. I, have, yeah. I have a question. As in the 80s, uh, Peru was being damaged severely, being affected by a shining path. Currently, uh, Central America and Mexico are being affected seriously by drug dealing. What would you propose for, for as a solution for this current problem? Mike here, please. Uh, good evening. Thank you for an amazing talk. Um, my question is, you said that before you actually figured out the uh, whole property and the memory, social memory and everything, you went and, you know, you set up the defender of the people. So what would be a similar, um, I, I guess, structure or institution uh, with the banks? 
One last question. Uh, uh, anyone at the top? Yes, the gentleman's hand up at the back. My name is Mikhail, uh, MSc economic student. Uh, my question is, uh, what, do, uh, what do you think, how do you see Russia's uh, economic development uh, in the light of the current property rights issues and just general institution? Some modest questions for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions. Let me answer them in in what I consider to be a sort of a, a logical order. The first one is: Is a piece of paper enough to uh, to get you uh, credit? Obviously not. Obviously not. But what the piece of paper does, if it reflects the real power relationships on the ground, who owns what? who's got interest in it, who's got the encumbrances or whatever it is, it passes on information. That information should produce some trust as regarding to that person and their control over assets. It produces a certain amount of credibility. It will not get you into uh, immediately into credit because if you're in a poor country that's got, I don't know, like uh, many African countries or like Haiti, uh, or any Central American country, you've got a GNP per capita of $700. Banks aren't interested in them. So it's obvious that that's not going to happen. But who said that banks gave the majority of credit to poor people? Well, the majority of credit to poor people comes from the informal economy. And in the informal economy, if I know who owns what, that makes the whole difference. And if I can get that piece of paper and hold it as a guarantee, I can take over that asset. Which is why we not only give property titles where we go, if that's what the government wants and what the people have. We also give business rights. In other words, if you just title the land and you title the building, and you forget about the fact that in most developing countries, what you have inside that building is a small little industry, with whatever it is. With whatever it is, it's a small weld, it's a small, it's a small sewing machine, uh, it's a few instruments, it's a blacksmith. If you don't put them inside the system, it's not going to work. And you've got to put the business as well, because then you have to give it a lot of attributes which Westerners created, like, for example, limited liability. It's a wonderful Western invention of the law, which allows you to say, I'm in business, but my liability is limited to what I can pay, which is $5,000 or $500. The result of that is that you know you can limit your debt to what you want it to be. You can separate it into different assets. And whoever is doing business with you knows how far he, he or she can go. As long as the poor are outside the legal system, they don't even have a starting chance because they operate with unlimited liability. You now have, for example, if I were to take your argument at this moment to the Peruvian jungle. In the Peruvian Amazon, we've had a clash. Recently, deaths. 40 people died both policemen and indigenous people over territorial rights. This is happening in Latin America, it's happening in Africa, it's happening in yeah. India, it's happening all over the place. All right. Now, there are people, and I understand your question to be rhetoric, uh, you're, some people go around and say, why give these people paper? I'll tell you why. Here you've got in the Peruvian jungle a community recognized in principle by law. It's a Shipibo community. Incomes next to them, or just slightly overlapping them, 
an American oil company. I'm using America simply because I remember the names here. It could be anybody. It could also be a Peruvian company. Now, it gets a piece of paper, while the Indians can't get a piece of paper because they say they only have rights to the communal rights, and they're not mapped anyhow because the first lady takes care of them, the president takes care of the formal economy. So one is charity, and the other one's the formal stuff. Now, that company gets it, and it's recorded. Then they take that piece of paper, and they include it in the ledger that goes inside the bilateral investment treaty. Every developing country basically has a bilateral investment treaty with other, other developed countries so that you know how we're going to handle your investors, right? So it's recorded there. Now, you not only have a super title, which they can't get in Peru, you have a super duper title. <laughs> then you go to the United States and you go to the office, the office, of, uh, the office of public, OPIC, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and you go to the United States and you get another insurance. And you got a super duper duper title. Then you go to the World Bank, which to secure investments in developing countries, you go to Multilateral Investment Guarantee, the MEGA department, and you get another insur insurance that comes with 197 countries saying that that property will be respected. Now you got a super duper duper <laughs> triple salary. Then you take that piece of paper, which reflects an underlying asset back in the Amazon, and you go to Wall Street or Toronto or wherever it is, and you say, baby, have I got something for you. <laughs> in the United States, if I had a piece of paper like that, it could be taken away by President Obama under eminent domain or any other thing. You know, these guys are crazy when they want to do things. But this thing, even the Peruvian parliament isn't allowed to touch it. I think it's worth $4 billion, and they get it. You go back then to Peru, and you try your argument with the Indians and saying, paper isn't really going to do it for you. What do you mean it isn't going to do it for you? If I get a paper, I'll get the $3 billion. Now, you might tell me it'll take a, a generation of education to get there. Maybe. Maybe you can get the American company to say, I'll give you 20% or 30%. It'll still make millionaires out of them. In other words, just because it doesn't produce immediately a good effect doesn't mean you shouldn't take vitamin C since you're two years old. Gradually, it'll work its way up, and it is an indispensable part of the whole. It is not necessarily everything. So nobody's saying it produces immediate effects. It just says you're identified, and should serendipity come along and oil is found in your property, guess what? You'll be rich, provided, of course, that you're white and that you're foreigner. Can't use that argument back home. It's good at LSC. Now, next uh, thing, uh, Mexico and Central America, drugs. This is, a, this is a different, it's a rule of law issue. Uh, but the way basically I see it is that uh, the trade in Latin America goes at different levels. You've got, first of all, those who produce the coca leaf, the proletariat. That's a Peruvian proletariat. That's a Bolivian proletariat. Then you've got the managers. They were in Colombia. But then, instead of trying to deal with the uh, drug situations we did in Peru, where by titling and therefore being able to identify the coca farmers and getting them closer to credit and markets, just a little bit closer, giving them opportunities, we were able to reduce the kind of the amount of uh, production, Peru's production, participation in coca production was 70% of the total, where we went down to 28%. Other people said, no, this is a police deal. So instead of dealing through it socially, or economically, 
The idea was more of a little bit of Miami Vice. Hit them hard. <laughs> Fine. I mean, that, that's part of the equation, but it's not the whole equation. Where they hit him hard was Bolivia. Now, the president of Bolivia is a former coca grower. Where you hit him hard was Colombia. And you got Pablo Escobar. Remember, David? They were chasing over, over the roofs, and they gunned him down. And then, of course, the drug, tra the drug traffickers said, hey, Colombia's a dangerous place. So they moved to Mexico. <laughs> so here's the thing. Do you believe, and it's a question of personal belief, because this is very, very touchy and susceptible. Do you believe that a Latin American army on $400 a month, $600 a month, $800 a month, is going to beat an army of thousands, a private army of thousands of people that have got a few million dollars a month. I don't think so. I just don't think so. It's, it's just not going to happen. I mean, with all the money in the world, you have all the money in the world. Uh, uh, where's Osama bin Laden for Pete's sake? Unless you have property and you have means of identifying who is where and who's got what and you've got them in the legal system, these are the kind of wars that you can't win. So the reply to that is, first of all, let's look at drugs the way they were looked at at the beginning of the century, not only as a police issue, but also as a political issue. Can you win that war? Were you able to win the war against alcohol? Ask yourself, one has to ask oneself that, uh, that, that question, which is basic. Do you want to look at it medically? I think it was Disraeli, your uh, prime minister, who was died because he continually, he, was, he took opium all the time, I believe. And then after a while, the question was, should he t get away from opium or not? And the reply to that was of his doctor said, you better keep on taking opium because otherwise you're going to get rumbling guts. I think that meant chronic diarrhea. So you've got to look at it from different angles and see what, where the biggest costs for society are. I'm not advocating drugs. I'm advocating a war that's winnable. Um, the, next, uh, the, the next question is, and I relate them, you know, who should do it? Credit default swaps and the rest, who should defend the people? Well, the reply to that is, I frankly don't know, because I really think that there we are facing a globalization, something of an order that we haven't faced before because of its extensions. Banking is obviously international. This has to do something with the IMF. Does it have to do something with bilateral invest, uh, sorry, um, Bank for International Settlements? We don't know. The only thing we know is that it's out of hand. And the other thing we know is that we're actually going to be ready to take solutions on this. And those who look very powerful today are not going to look very powerful tomorrow once, the f once it starts hurting again. If the result of all these measures taken is that somehow around the world says, hey, things aren't so bad. I don't have to trust you because you have the UK government behind you. You've got the US government behind you. You've got the Belgian government behind you. It's OK. If that happens, then obviously I'm wrong in everything I said. Trust can be managed by political will. But should I not be wrong, when it hurts next, which it hasn't hurt for about a year and a half, when it hurts next, we'll be able to do something about it. And then we'll start thinking no longer in terms that are purely economic, Keynesian, but in the political terms that you were talking about before. Hey, hey, somehow or other, this house is not in order. Who's going to put some kind of order. And then we can talk about, do you need more regulation, less regulation, or do you need more free markets? And then we can have a good debate about where to go. But it's not going to happen until it hurts. I don't go to the dentist until it really hurts. It's nonsense. 
Pardon me? I'm glad to know when you go to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> was there one more? Or it, that, 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 there was one more. I was hoping you wouldn't look at it. Okay. <laughs> the idea is about Russia. I really don't know much. You can about. say pass. I can say pass. You can say it. Yeah. I come from a macho culture. Here it goes. <laughs> the, reply, the reply to that is, I don't know much about Russia. The only thing I know is that, uh, regarding my book, The Mystery of Capital, uh, the two places where it's read most, it's about 2,400,000 copies back. Not bad for not bad. Economics, not bad. Uh, <laughs> the two biggest readerships outside the United States are China and Russia, or the former Soviet Union. And so we've invited, they've been invited there numerous times, and the last time I was shown by uh, Vice Prime Minister Shubalov a declaration of Putin referring directly to the ILD and saying, we're putting, we're implementing their ideas. And just the day I got a call from somebody else, the Minister of Finance, inviting me to a conference, where they were going to tell us what they'd done so far and what advice did we have to give. I'll write to you about this, but I really don't know what's going on yet. But we know that there's hope. And uh, regarding the rest, how does Russia compare to the rest of the world? Um, I'm sorry, I'm not, an, I'm not really an expert. Right. We, we, we don't have much time, unfortunately, left, although I think the audiences here could, we, uh, would be happy to listen to you for hours to, to come. But uh, the LSE rules are such that uh, uh, we have to finish more or less at eight. I just would like, if anybody's bursting to ask a short question, shoot your hand up. Okay, lady at the back there. Second row, second row. Yeah, you had your hand up first. Let's take two more short questions. Um, I, was, I was just wondering, it sounds, and I may have, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're saying not only that it needs, uh, there needs to be some sort of register, some, some sort of uh, writing down, but there's some, some uniformity to it, that it's a, a bunch of local uh, institutions is not sufficient. And it sounds like your, your favored uh, level of that is the nation state. And why is, why is that the right level of uniformity? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, I, I would actually love to see one day a world government and that, you know, we're all equal on, the, on this earth and uh, we get rid of all, uh, all the boundaries that you can't even see from an airplane. I, I agree. Uh, the thing for the moment is that those who award property rights by tradition over the last two centuries or, or, or since they exist are the nation states, are the sovereign states. And sovereign states are the ones that are recognized with, uh, with, that, uh, uh, with that order. So we just simply accept that. There's a, we're now just becoming a little bit more sophisticated in my organization, which is we found out that there's, it seems that there's sufficient autonomy in places like Nigeria, where the governorships have got enough power so that at that level, you can create the rule of law that you're talking about. We just simply go to wherever, I mean, we don't take the final decisions. Governments contract us. And wh whoever is in charge are the people that we give our advice to and that we help along. That's the reason why uh, we do the proper. Uh, we, we 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 deal with heads of state because for the moment, and I have a feeling that for much time to come, they're the ones that are entrusted with divvying up the nation. Because that's interesting. There's a lot behind the question you've asked, which is that there's two ways to look at territory. I mean, we human beings have found two ways of looking at territory. One, of course, is sovereignty. 
which has to do with the nation state or with political power, and the other one is property, which is the territory within the sovereign area where you can have it public, as I said, private or, or whatever it is. But, on the, but the sovereign power is, uh, is basically the one you have to, 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 to address to. Last question. Okay, uh, my, name is, my name is Fernando. I'm from Peru, too. And my question is about that. Um, I was very impressed about what you say about the shining part in the uh, early 80s. Um, what is the relation with the people who live with the natives? Do you think we can extrapolate this situation, this scenario, in another situation like Afghanistan, for example, what happened there right now? Yeah. No, I, I think it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very good uh, question. Uh, some of the countries that have called us is because they've seen the parallel. In other words, we get, for example, a lot of correspondence from, uh, I think they're called PRT teams or whatever they've got in Afghanistan, or I forget if it's Iraq. These are these teams of uh, professional sociologists, economists, and lawyers attached to each battalion, the purpose of which is to find out what the local population needs and wants. And we get letters from them all the time saying, this is it. Uh, this is what Al-Qaeda is doing. It is protecting the assets. And this is what this terrorist group, it is, it is protecting the assets. And for example, in the case of Afghanistan, uh, they've even sent three ministers to, to, to see us. They don't seem to be able to totally get their act together, but obviously they believe so, that something like that is happening. And uh, it was a, it's, it's not something that started off in Peru. It's actually something that probably started off, I mean, the, my first knowledge of it is China. Uh, when Mao Tung is cornered in Manchuria, uh, he's there cornered, and he starts coming down when he starts beginning to have the present revolution, and he actually talks even about private property. Then his armies swell, and he takes Chiang Kai-shek and chases him out of the main continent, and then establishes it, establishes power, and then of course does reforms in the sense of taking away from landowners, but essentially he understood that he who controls property controlled the game. The second place I've come across it, and don't forget, I'm, I'm in the business of reforms, and I try and grasp at history and a few ideas because I can't do the reforms if that, if that doesn't happen, was uh, 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 wait a second, no. The first place wasn't China, it was Japan. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, before the United States wins the war against Japan, MacArthur establishes a commission in Honolulu under a man called Wolf Ladijinsky, the idea of which is to plan what the United States will do in Japan once it wins the war. That's the way it's established. They come to the conclusion that the reason why Japan is, as far as they're concerned, aggressive is because there's a coalition between the feudal classes and the military. The feudal classes being uh, concerned about the fact that there's already been something like 57 major peasant revolts against the established uh, landholding classes. So the idea is, how does Jap why does Japan start getting involved outside? Wolf Ladijinsky and MacArthur say it's because they uh, want to get more land elsewhere so as to put the pressure on other countries, and secondly, conscript their citizens, put them under military order, and then hold them. So Wolf Ladijinsky says the way we're going to make sure not only that we win the war against Japan, but that Japan doesn't become an aggressive territorial-wise is by creating property in Japan. 1945, one of the first edicts of, uh, of MacArthur, was thinking precisely about that, was asking the, the, uh, the temporary 
Japanese government to go out and create the property reform. We don't have the maps, said the Japanese. And they said, you do. They're from the Edo period, 400 years ago. They create a commission, and then they start creating a property economy, which is why, for us, Peruvia, why did we study this? It's because we needed that argument back in Peru, because we had a, a, a president, do you remember, that came from Japanese origin. And we've got over 6 million, between Brazil and Peru, 6 million people of Japanese origin that came to Brazil and Peru, because before the Second World War, we had three times their GNP. After the Second World War, you go now, they've got 11 times our GNP, because now they're a property economy. So first China, then Japan, then, interestingly enough, in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh titles faster than the Americans and wins the war at the village level, all of which needs to be documented. Please be around for my third book. <laughs> now, there's someone ask, desperate to ask a tiny, weeny question. Last one. Well, here's the reply. It depends, it depends what you're talking about. In terms of property, we don't have 60% in informal economy. It's much less because practically the whole urban sector, which is 75% of the economy, 80% of it is titled. We weren't allowed to get into the agricultural sector and the Amazonic sector. That was reserved for the Inter-American Development Bank. It had a program called PET. It didn't work. So regarding property, you're formal because there's many ways to be informal. You can own your home. You can own your house but you can decide to have a business that isn't inside the system. So the reply to that is simply uh, an adjustment in the numbers. We are now a more, more, than, more than we were before a formalized economy. Uh, our GNP has been growing, as you know, between 7 and 9 percent a, a year, and, that's, and that is largely, but, but by far, a formal economy. However, a lot of the trade in the provinces, Juliaca, Puno, the Amazon is still largely informal, and that's where the money is going now because of the petrol and the mines and, uh, and those kind of things. So a lot of the wealth is now where it wasn't before. That would explain the, what the, our apparent contradictions in numbers. Let me just ask you then one final, final question. Assume it's now 10 o'clock and you've had two or three glasses of wine, <laughs> and I ask you, from your perspective, from your perspective, looking into the future, say 15, 20 years, which countries do you think will be most dynamic and why? Oh. <laughs> and why? Because having read your books and having listened to you tonight, I'm searching for the, what you think are the key explanatory variables behind the dynamism of countries. <coughs> Maybe that's the wrong level to pitch a question at you. you know, but you haven't had two or three glasses of wine, but just assume you have. <coughs> you know, because we have now these really clear trends going, what look like clear trends. And you have said, you know, the trend of the region, <coughs> shift in economic power to, to the east, the stagnation of, of the Anglo-American economic model, uh, the rise of China and so on. You said, well, don't overstate that and so on. But I'm just wondering from your perspective, mm -hmm. thinking, uh, knowing what you do know, now about the causes of this, you know, the crisis, the financial crisis in the West, the depth of which it has gone, the, hold, the way it holds back the old dynamism of the Western economies. Knowing all of that and knowing what is going on elsewhere in Asia, 10, 15 years time, yeah. who and why? Why? Yeah, why? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, first of all, let me tell you, not being, uh, not being a political scientist, 
I think it's very difficult to foresee what's going to happen politically. Mm -hmm. You can see today's policies, but you know, who's the next president of the United States? Let's be States? an economist for a moment. Everything else being equal, only yeah, economists right. can do okay. that. No, no, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to try and define it in a certain way. Which are the countries that will do it right among developing and former Soviet Union countries will be those countries that get closer to the rule of law. In other words, at the end, the division of labor, which is specialization, uh, works provided the law works. Because at the end, everything that we've got around us, uh, look around you, or go back home, or go back to Africa, or go back to Latin America. There's not one thing that is produced by one person. Everything is the result of collaboration. Everything is a result of combination. Remember my example about the pencil? It takes so many countries to do a pencil. It takes so many. All right. So what happens is that when your law works, uh, you've got Switzerland, which doesn't produce cocoa, which doesn't produce sugar, which doesn't produce even a third of its milk, and yet it makes the best chocolates, and it makes the best watches. You've got Japan, which doesn't have the metals, and yet it makes it. So it's the countries that are able to combine. Now, that means that the first thing that is necessary is a system of the rule of law where everything is identified. So the question is, who of the countries doing this now is going to get there is going to depend to the uh, it's going to depend very much on that development of the rule of law. So far, for example, it would seem that the Chinese are in a very good position. First, because they're practical. Uh, second, because uh, whatever they're doing, at least on the East Coast, seems to work. The West side of, uh, of China is a different story. You know, there's been over 60,000 revolts there. Let's find out if they manage to absorb them. That will very much define where China goes. Uh, third, because they've been extremely practical in terms of the fact that they saw that their own law to take root was taking time. So you start finding out that a lot of the uh, a lot of these corporations that are being successful abroad are actually incorporated under Hong Kong law because that's a law that works, it's got the institution, it's got the people, it's all those things that you said are missing aside from a property title. It's got them there. So they've been smart enough. So I would say China has got uh, a very good chance at it. Chile in Latin America seems to be on the right road, not only because it took out its, 30, its, its, its 33 miners, but because it seems to have reached some kind of consensus. Now that consensus, of course, has conspired against economic growth because in terms of uh, growth, the Chileans over the last seven, eight years haven't been growing very much. But, once, but it seems like a society that is willing and able to dialogue, get everybody together, and they, it, it, would, it would move ahead. Uh, these, are the two, these are two countries I would, uh, I would bet on, type of countries. But it has to do with the rule of law. Right. And That's that is outside the purview of economists. And that is one of the reasons we can't get to the bottom of the financial crisis, because we're always thinking that it's essentially economic and financial when it is fundamentally political. Okay, thank you. That's an extremely helpful summary. <laughs> I think next, next time I introduce you, which will be, you don't know this yet, but we've scheduled another talk for you at uh, half past 10 this evening after you've had a meeting. <laughs> I will say, he's not just remarkable, he's not just friendly, but he's very funny. We've all heard that tonight. So thank you so much. It was thank a you. great evening.